Welcome to Tempest, a history podcast. I'm Matt Smith. I suppose one of my interests is what are the particular aspects of that landscape that seem to feed into the myth-making? And I'm thinking very much as a Homerist here because Homer's always talking about that the Trojan War is a heroic battle fought in a beautiful landscape. These young men give up their lives. In many ways, that's kind of a core part of the Gallipoli narrative as well. This is Chris Mackey, professor of Greek studies and expert on all things classics at La Trobe University. And the area he's talking about is in modern Turkey. It became a significant historical site, not just to Turkey, but to Australians as well, as the site of the Gallipoli campaign during World War One. Gallipoli's a, a promontory, I suppose, or a peninsula as we, we usually call it. I suppose the area of concern for us in the ancient site stretches from Suvla in the north down through Anzac to Cape Helles in the south. The name Gallipoli in ancient Greek means beautiful city and the, the area, it's, it's still a very, very beautiful landscape, but quite diverse. Today on the podcast, what is the story before the story starts? You see, to a lot of Australians, all that they know about Gallipoli is centred around Australia's involvement in World War I. But the story goes back a lot further than that. Everybody wants to be in control of that the waterway that is adjacent to it, called the Dardanelles, basically connects the Black Sea with Russia and Ukraine and all those sorts of countries. In the modern times, it's known as the site of the Battle of Gallipoli during World War I in which Australian, New Zealand, British and French troops stormed the beachfront and fought against Turkish forces. But Gallipoli has long been seen as the edge of Europe. It's in close proximity to the famous city of Troy and its literary origins reach all the way back to Homer and the Iliad. It's very interesting that if we go back to the Iliad about 700 BCE, the only reference to the Gallipoli Peninsula is to a city called Sestos which is kind of in the middle on the Dardanelles side, that allows us to say that the Gallipoli Peninsula goes as far back in Western European history as we can go in terms of the literary sources. Now, what kind of place was Sestos in 700 BC? It probably wasn't a Greek city at all because it was an ally of the Trojans in the war against the Greeks. That's about the only reference uh, of any significance to the Gallipoli Peninsula. So you've got a continuous timeline for more than 2,000 years of people living on the Gallipoli Peninsula, building their cities, living their lives, raising their crops, and as people tend to do, fighting and dying for it, long before the start of the First World War. That whole region, the west of Turkey, was what we might call part of ancient Greece, and the Greek-speaking peoples moved up into the Gallipoli Peninsula from the south from about 650 BCE and established a number of cities on the Gallipoli Peninsula. And the Athenians, in particular, had a major role to play in the development of the Gallipoli Peninsula in antiquity. And we can be thankful for that because we've got quite good literary records of what Athens was doing and what they thought of Gallipoli. As the main route between Europe and Asia, the Gallipoli Peninsula had a lot of trade and strategic importance. So a number of Greek cities were established upon it. There were quite a few cities. We know the names of about 12 or 13. Some of them were significant cities like Sestos. 
We call them cities, that's just the Greek word polis, which might be a, a very big city like, like Athens or a very small city. It might just be a few hundred people. So, But we know a, quite a number of settlements from the literary evidence. The Greeks stayed in the region right up until just before the Gallipoli campaign, but they didn't have it to themselves. Obviously, the Turks by that stage had moved into the region and prior to the Gallipoli campaign, the Gallipoli Peninsula was shared by Greeks and Turks who seemed, as far as I can tell, to get on pretty well for the most part. Getting along well for the most part maybe understates it a bit. Say, for example, there was an earthquake in 1354 and one of the Greek cities, named Gallipoli, had to be abandoned. The Turks took advantage of this and quickly reoccupied the city, which made it at that point the first Ottoman position in Europe and the staging point for their expansion across the Balkans. As I say, a lot of history covered in that time. Unfortunately, archaeology hasn't had a significant role on the Gallipoli Peninsula in the 20th century because it it was perceived as an area of strategic importance, not uh, as an area of archaeological importance. This focus has changed in recent years, and there is now quite a lot of archaeological activity going on on the Gallipoli Peninsula. And it was even starting to change during the Gallipoli campaign in 1915. Take, for example, what the French did. One of the most astonishing episodes, in my view, of the Gallipoli campaign was undertaken by the French in the middle of 1915. You'll appreciate that when soldiers of whatever nationality were digging trenches, they would come on ancient material. What happened with the French, though, is that they conducted an excavation, an official excavation, at Hellas, so down at the tip of the peninsula, looking across at Troy, actually, as it happens, and they came upon ancient material. The city was called Elaeus. It was the necropolis at Elaeus, and Elaeus takes its name from the olive tree. And this was an important city that Greek historians like Thucydides and Herodotus talk about. There's a major sea battle fought there in the Peloponnesian War, for instance. And so they decided that they would conduct a proper excavation. The French thought to write a pretty extensive report on their excavations. And so for the record, they dug up 56 tombs, and in these they found 38 sarcophagi, as well as a number of other material. The French thought that doing this excavation was a matter of national importance. In their report to the French Academy, they wrote, and I quote, The general headquarters of the expeditionary force, true to an already age-old tradition, thought it important for the good name of French science to play a part, despite the limits imposed by the circumstances, in the study of the ancient remains that our soldiers' picks had uncovered during military endeavours. General headquarters therefore ordered excavations, whose desired scope was unfortunately restricted by the necessities of war. And it remains one of the more remarkable episodes in the history of archaeology, in my view. Can you imagine conducting a formal official archaeological excavation? And bear in mind, the French forces lost somewhere between 10,000 and 15,000 men. It is a quite remarkable episode in French history. I love that they did it, but you've got to question their priorities that this is going on, and yet... Yeah, and, and, and the the report talks about that, that, you know, they, they didn't want to let too many men be involved, and that's why they only allowed 
foreman to be involved actually doing the work because it would have created a bad look to conduct an actual formal excavation even with just a few men was it was a bit of a dangerous look but in you know in the shadow of world war ii the french academy took great pride in what the french had done here and said they never forgot what was important in the world just because there's a war going on So that's one example of antiquities rearing their heads during a war context. There's one more I'd like to cover. And this one took place during the construction of the Lone Pine Monument. Lone Pine is a memorial set up after the war, essentially a cemetery. It's been of interest to me for some years that a diarist called Cyril Lawrence wrote about coming upon Roman material or ancient material right adjacent to Lone Pine. He was part of an engineering unit that would dig the trenches and the saps and so forth. And Lawrence talks about coming upon ancient material. One of Lawrence's diary entries reads as follows, and this was written on June 22nd, 1915. There is nothing exciting to report as to my shift on the tunnels. As we drive through, we come across all sort of earth, etc. In places, we run through great deposits of pottery buried as low as 20 feet. This is very fine stuff and is in excellent state of preservation. Rather red and of a very fine texture, it seems to be of the one class of work. We came across a huge sort of basin made out of this the other night. It must have been about six feet in diameter and shaped thus. And he makes a note and he draws a sketch and all, all that sort of stuff. It was about five inches deep and would be about one and a half inches thick. Mostly it takes the form of slabs and seems to be a kind of covering for the dead. I intend to get a little piece of it if I can. We don't know if he actually did get a piece, but it's safe to say that if he wanted to, he could have. Lawrence came upon this material at B3 Tunnel, uh, just near to Lone Pine. I found another source which indicated that when they were building the cenotaph at Lone Pine, they came upon Roman material indicating that there was some kind of Roman settlement there in ancient times. And I was part of a team that doing a surface survey of the Anzac battlefield until recently, and we found quite a bit of material around where B3 was and on the Lone Pine commemoration site itself. The material found in the B3 tunnel and on nearby Lone Pine indicates that the Romans were in the area and possibly built a fort. So I think we can say without any doubt that if any of the listeners are going to Lone Pine that they are also on a, a site that was a Roman settlement, a Roman fort, a Roman camp. And when you go there, you can see why there would have been a Roman presence there, because you can look from Lone Pine all the way down the peninsula. It's a major strategic location. The final story that we have of the history of the Gallipoli Peninsula for today is based around the English poet Lord Byron. Byron is a great admirer of Hellenic culture. At the beginning of the 19th century, took a well-publicised trip, which included Troy and the Gallipoli Peninsula. Probably in this part of the world, he's famous for his swim across the Dardanelles. 
Byron did this swim in 1810, and he recorded it in his poem Don Juan, which was published 11 years later in 1821. In fact, if you go there today, on the 30th of August, you can take part in a swim between Gallipoli and the Asian side that kind of commemorates Byron's swim, partly in honour of the myth of Hero and Leander, which is like an ancient Romeo and Juliet story. Leander swam from the Asian side to the European side to be with his love, and then he turned around and swam back. Very fit guy. Byron's writings became hugely popular, to the extent that years later when soldiers were deployed on the Gallipoli campaign, they took with them copies of Byron's writing and a romantic notion of the adventure they were embarking on. The interesting thing is, you scroll forward uh, 95 years, Gallipoli 1915, and the world hadn't changed that much. You get a lot of fairly well-known English poets like uh, Rupert Brooke, who kind of take a leaf out of Byron's book and write about Gallipoli as if they're going to Troy. The two become connected in the minds of these English aristocrats because they'd spent all their time, their youth, reading Homer, studying classic. Next minute they get sent off to the Dardanelles to fight and they, you're getting all this English romanticism. As somebody who works on Homer's Iliad a lot, I found that quite a fascinating response to where they were going. That's Chris Mackey, Professor of Greek Studies at La Trobe University. You've been listening to the History Podcast Tempest. You can subscribe to it on SoundCloud or at iTunes.com slash Tempest Podcast. You can like the podcast on Facebook or you can follow me on Twitter. I'm at Nightlight Guy. I hope you enjoyed the episode. And until next time, I'm Matt Smith. You've been fantastic and thanks for listening. <laughs>